like, yeah, 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 it's yeah. good. I get it. That's shit for LA people to watch, right? Okay. I'm good. over here watching. Listen, I'm never the gonna watch Gun it now. Trace Task Force. I'm an episode behind. Don't spoil it. Uh, oh, okay. Hard to spoil it though. I know. It's, I know. It's, it's all. Like... It's all real. It's true. We yeah. all know. They all. Yeah. It gets. Yeah. Anyway, feel yeah, free I, to spoil it. Then, I've been dealing but... with Brad and Matt, uh, just constantly texting me like, "You're a cop, Andy. You're one of these guys. You're Wayne Jenkins." Like. <laughs> We just keep thinking of you as Wayne Jenkins, you know. They're just like, "You, this is you. You're such a cop. You, you would. This is the cop you would be, you know." <laughs> I was like, "All right, all right, easy, easy, easy." Yeah. yeah. Bros, don't let bros call each other Wayne yeah. Jenkins. Come on now. Yeah, no kidding. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along his route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, oh, oh. The truth is, guys, starting to get on my That's hot out there. Let's we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of the gauntlet i am one of your hosts andrew stasulis and i am joined here with eric marsh and ryan saunders for those who don't know the gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of the hosts selects a topic and the other two are tasked with bringing films to the table that address the topic, meet the topic. I was up. It was my turn. We've been doing a lot of weird, arbitrary sort of anniversary things here, I feel, for the last couple episodes, because we've all been (laughs) sort of arguing about what is our one-year anniversary. So uh, I think we've done stuff for 50, 51, and I was up for 52, because I thought, 52 weeks. Um, Regardless, this is episode 52, and as I mentioned at the end of our show last week. I've been reflecting back on our time together and and I feel very lucky, as I said, very fortunate to be doing this with two of my best friends and been having so much fun. It's been really a great joy and it's pushed me uh, in ways that uh, I didn't even really truly expect when we started doing this together to to seek out things that I might not have sought out otherwise. And, and I really just do feel very, very fortunate. So I thought I'd lean into that spirit of good fortune, of luck, of feeling blessed, perhaps, on a certain level. So I thought, let's bring movies to the table that focus on that, on gambling, on luck, on fortune. And I also thought, you know, 52 pickup, even though I don't think 52 pickup is an actual sort of gambling game, but it's a card game and it's, <laughs> it's more a troll than anything. But, but I think that that fits in very well with our, our spirit. So that's it. I asked the boys to bring movies, to bring me movies about, uh, about gambling and they sure did. <laughs> they never disappoint. You both. <laughs> you always know what I need. Uh, and we had two very, very delightful comedies 
today to talk about, and I'm I'm uh, really thrilled with the selections. So, without rambling too much more, I think we should just get into it. So, uh, yeah, let's start with the earlier film, Marsh. What did you bring to the Gauntlet listeners today? I really love movies about gambling because I really love to gamble. (laughs) And uh, it's a good thing I decided to become a not-rich filmmaker. Otherwise, I don't know what would have happened to my fortunes, you know, if I had a little (laughs) cash to throw around at the table, you know. Um, So this was a a fun one for me. And, you know, I think like a lot of people, you know, I think maybe my, my favorite gambling movie is probably California you split but of course we we fairly recently did Altman and everyone's seen that one anyway so I decided to I guess lean into the into the spirit of new Hollywood nevertheless uh, and picked a film that I saw a few years ago uh, and I really do think is a, an underappreciated gem a film that was uh, hated at the time of its release and still not loved by very many people uh, Uh, But nevertheless, I think it's a movie that captures the gambler's spirit, you know, and all the shenanigans and the highs and the lows that go with it. And so I chose Hal Ashby's 1982 comedy, Looking to Get Out. And this film, uh, of course, comes in... Uh, Hal Ashby's troubled period. He obviously, you know, was a new Hollywood maverick that had quite a bit of financial success in the 1970s. And uh, this, of course, led him to make uh, Being There in 1979, which was part of a a three-picture deal he had with Lorimar. He set up his own production company uh, after coming home because he won so many awards and Hollywood had confidence in him. And he makes being there and has a terrible time with the production company Lorimar. He feels like they bungled the release, they didn't respect him. And then he was on the hook for two more films with them. Uh, And that led to a disastrous uh, production of Second Hand Hearts, and then to Looking to Get Out, which was the third film in in that deal. And it is a film that had a uh, troubled production, and I think that's something that kind of shows on screen, but it's also something I think uh, doesn't matter at all. Because ultimately this film was Hal Ashby's favor to John Voight, who came up with uh, really the the film itself. It was not his uh, idea originally. It was the brainchild of this guy, Al Schwartz, who was an old comedy writer and gambler and compulsive gambler. And so Schwartz had written like a 30-page treatment and Voight was like, this is the best thing I've ever read. We got to put this on, you know, drunk on, uh, you know, John Cassavetes, as we'll talk about. And probably just drunk, too. Yeah, perhaps. (laughs) that as well, you know, Voight was feeling very artistic uh, and decided to take this treatment, you know, to his old friend Hal Ashby, right, after they'd had so much success before. And Ashby was dealing with all these post-production problems and was like, yeah, it's great, let's do it. And so the film is, uh, 
a tale of two gamblers and really two guys that could have fit very well in our roommates episode. I was thinking the same thing. And we have in this film uh, John Voight as Alex Kovac, who is uh, a fast-talking, just full-of-hot-air uh, gambler, you know? He's uh, he's full of shit, and he won't stop talking. And uh, he's the, you know, the central sort of whirlwind performance of the film. Uh, and his stoic partner, Jerry Feldman, as played by the great Burt Young, uh, who is underplaying everything while Voight is overplaying everything. Uh, and shout out to the multiple people on Letterboxd who referred to this as Hal Ashby's Dumb and Dumber. I now look at this film in a different light because of that, and I think that's a very apt description. And, uh, Anyway, to get to the point, uh, he loses a shitload of money to a bunch of loan sharks in New York City and concocts a scheme to go to Vegas uh, within 24 hours to repay this loan or else uh, they're going to do very bad, violent things to him. And so they, you know, they go to Vegas and try to uh, get out. Try to get out, you know, try to get out. <laughs> that's the title of the movie. And uh, that's it. That's the movie. It's uh just a lot of hanging out, you know, a lot in the casino, in the MGM Grand, beautiful cinematography by Haskell Wexler. Uh, and yeah, it is a, an aggressive film. It's got lots of unlikable guys, you know, being very loud. Uh, it's definitely not for everyone, but uh, definitely one, I think, that fits the theme, you know, in terms of what we're talking about here tonight. Indeed, it does. As... The second film also does. <laughs> Ryan, what did you bring? Well, unlike Marsh, I'm, I'm not a compulsive gambler. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't have it in me. I, I'm not a born gambler. I'm a bit neurotic. I'm a bit paranoid. I've always been bad at the act of gambling. I can't, like, surrender myself to it. So You're too tight. Yeah, too tight. <laughs> So when I received the topic, and I do like gambling cinema, I like seeing gambling in films, um, I do find it exciting, especially just knowing that, like, I never dare, right? Like, it's something <laughs> I shouldn't participate in, I'll just make a fool of myself. I also found a great deal of comfort in picking a film about a game that I don't understand, <laughs> a game whose rules are, you know, I actually feel like having now seen this film a second time, I have a clearer idea of the rules of Mahjong, which is the game of choice in my film. Um, but still, ultimately, it's a very foreign game to a Westerner like me. However, I think the joy in this film greatly surpasses the fact that uh, even if you go and not knowing the rules, it's something you can walk away with, with a newfound appreciation of both the game and family and chance and fate and luck and loyalty. It's all there, as it is in many gambling films. So the film that I selected is uh, an old favorite of mine, the film Fat Choi Spirit from 2002, a Milky Way production co-directed by the great Johnny Toe and Wei Kafai. Fat Choi Spirit stars a bunch of regulars in the Johnny Toe filmography, and since they all essentially play versions of themselves and are referred to by name, that's usually probably the easiest entry point into describing who all these people are. There's Andy Lau in the film. He is a compulsive Mahjong player, but one who is remarkably successful. Initially, he was, he was quite bad at the game, and he was sort of banished from home, and he 
became disconnected from his mother and his brother, his brother played by Louis Koo, his first appearance in a Johnny Toe film. Louis Koo is more academic and traditionally successful, does not uh, enjoy the game of Mahjong. But Andy Lau has had a stroke of fortune over the years. He has a now ex-girlfriend named Gigi, has a, has, a, has a bad temper and is a very sore loser at Mahjong, and this is something that's created a rift in their relationship and prevented them from finally tying the knot and getting married. But Andy uh, did receive a bit of good luck from Gigi, who sort of blessed him with the ability to be an exceptional Mahjong player, and he he's ended up with a, a lovely furnished home, he, he lives a, the high life, and he's just a, a Mahjong champion. But early on in the film, he's reconnected with his mother, who he finds out is suffering from Alzheimer's. And then a series of events that, you know, this is a, a tightly plotted and goofy and manic film, so I won't get into too much of it into this introduction, but essentially, right, what happens is the types of things you see happen in gambling films. Money is lost. Money needs to be gained again. Luck that may have been with them is also suddenly lost, and that luck needs to be found again. But in that journey for money and luck, things are learned along the way about each other, about what brings us together, etc., etc. It is a lovely film. I'll never forget when I saw it the first time. I saw it at Doc Films at the University of Chicago, and I saw it like a glistening 35 millimeter print of this thing and I mean my eyes were melting I remember it is such a candy colored and zany looking movie and it's one of the most 2002 looking films <laughs> I've ever seen and whenever I think about the early 2000s this is one of the first films I think of because it feels like the early 2000s on steroids the fashion that is on display in this film is just out of this world and as is the comedy, as is the camera work, as is everything else, as you would expect in a Johnny Toe film. So it's it's great to finally have Johnny here on the pod with us. And yeah, that's that's Fat Choice Spirit from 2002. Thank you. Thank you both. I think for me, a good place to start in trying to pick apart these two films, maybe compare them, maybe contrast them, uh, is in the essence of gambling itself. I think one of the age-old debates about gambling and the games associated with gambling is, are these games of skill or games of chance? Is it something that that people can be good at or is it really just something tied to luck and i think both of these films from my perspective kind of take two different perspectives on that ultimately so i wanted to to maybe ask you both what what you thought about that you know uh are these films suggesting that it's 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 a player's ability or the luck of the draw. Well, personally, you know, I think obviously it it varies from game to game and, uh, you know, how you play it. You know, obviously there are certain games perhaps, you know, that are more skill-based like poker versus something uh, like blackjack. However, I think ultimately what we see in looking to get out regarding blackjack reveals that there is skill involved uh, however in the background but i think you know ultimately these films 
are, yeah, it is, it's a very East versus West uh, kind of philosophies on display here, I think, to a certain extent, right? Where Fat Choice Spirit has a much more balanced kind of look at gambling, you know, uh, and a kind of good message, you know, and I think American views on gambling may be slightly different, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah, I think in, in Fat Choice Spirit, it, it also kind of varies from game to game. It's hard because, again, I don't totally understand the strategy and what goes into Mahjong. They are doing tons of things in the games that I don't understand like exactly what's happening. I know they discard things face up these tiles and that those tiles then are like no longer in play, but they also have like a separate discard pile that's in the corner of the table. I don't really understand what that is, but it is a matter of finding patterns and it's hard to tell how much they're playing the table. You know, they get a sense of, uh, you know, discarding tiles because that's what they assume that the other players are going to need and, like, that sort of thing. But then there's other people in the film that rig the system. There's the the, the, the Mahjong master, who's played by the great Lao Ching Wan, and who goes by Sean in this film. And, you know, he, when he realizes he's at, at stake, he's going to lose these games, he just keeps changing the rules. He says, oh, no, we're playing American Mahjong. Or as the dealer, I get to decide that we swap, that we shift three tiles to each of us. It's at, or like, you know, this hand's only 13 tiles as opposed to 16. There are other elements of deception in the film, such as leaving a little piece of rice on your tile. So if you someone accidentally sees it, they don't realize how many circles are on your individual tile. So while our character is blessed with luck in the film, and luck is a major part of Fat Choice Spirit, I also think that the film does detail the way people can rig the game or also just play each other uh, in a manner of skill. Well, I think any uh, wise person when asked, you know, that question is, is this a game of skill? Is this a game of chance? You know, the, 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 the wise man would say both, right? There are good players and bad players, but there's also good luck and bad luck. And it's what you do with the good luck and the bad luck you have. And I think both of these films sort of balance that, but I think that both lean in a different direction. And maybe the characters themselves, certainly the central characters, lean towards different directions. You know, I can't help but but think that in Fat Choi Spirit, Andy talks a lot about luck. Uh, he talks a lot about fortune, good fortune and bad fortune, you know? And, and throughout most of the film, as you mentioned in your intro, he is on a great, great, great bit of luck. He's been having a lot of luck. And the twist and turn in his lucky streak and his fortune will play a, a, a key role in, in uh, you know, his ups and downs throughout the film. And certainly, you know, as we will get there, uh, his, his almost Zen-like relationship to those, those shifts, you know, that, that he will talk about later in the film. Whereas for me, in, in looking to get out, I think if you ask John Voight's character, Alex, he will 100% say to you that it's skill. Oh, yeah. As we're introduced to him, you know, and he's got some money in his pocket. So the first thing he has to do, of course, is go gamble it, go to find a find a card game. And he 
of course, loses his his shirt um, metaphorically, whereas in Fat Choice Spirit, we will we will see a guy <laughs> literally lose his shirt yes. at a certain point. Yeah. Um, but Alex, when he's trying to to explain to Jerry the next day about about losing and losing all of his money, I mean, he he doesn't talk about it in terms of like, man, I got bad cards, I got bad luck. You know, for him, he was like, I couldn't play. I couldn't think straight. I couldn't read the cards. I was so mad at this guy who was just fucking with me the whole time, right? So he he sees it as skill. He wouldn't say it's some higher power and control. He sees everything as something that can be overcome, you know, every game, every scenario, every tough spot by scheming or 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 uh, coming up with a great system perhaps you know at least that's my interpretation maybe the, the the two different characters and their their sort of approaches oh i think definitely i mean yeah in fat choice spirit it is andy moves through these games with an inner peace and john voigt just fights his way through these games with like brazen confidence smashing his way through it and determining the fate through his willpower alone it almost feels like sometimes yeah Mm -hmm. i think it's i think it's telling then that you know when alex and jerry go to vegas that you know you you may as a viewer be thinking like what's their plan what game are they gonna play how are they gonna win this money back But that's not what develops at all. And what develops is that Alex recognizes this old-timey Vegas gambler working as a waiter and invests all his time, energy, and money into, you know, betting on this guy to win at the tables, right? So I think, again, he's, like, looking around going, like, I need to find a skillful gambler, a good gambler. So, you know, someone who can beat the system, however they do it, you know, Um, but he puts all his faith in this guy, Smitty, you know, who he saw, you know, uh, a decade earlier, have a wild night at the tables or whatever. And is like, this is the guy, right? No one else can do it. Not even himself, Mm -hmm. you know? I do want to just quickly have a special shout out to Smitty. That was something I was really thrilled by when seeing this film, because I've never seen this film before. And I love Burt Remsen. He is one of my favorite, just totally random performers that appears usually into the tiniest of roles. He like even more so than Paul Dooley. Burt Remsen's the kind of guy that'll appear in a 70s film for a single scene and then he'll disappear. And to see him in so many scenes in this movie it was really exciting i you know when and he's also in california split i can't remember the exact situation in the film but he gives this really compassionate performance and every time he shows up and stuff he's surprising so i just wanted to like just a personal thank you marsh for picking a film hey. that uh, i i hadn't realized how much i had wanted to see a a meaty role with burt remsen until this time around that was that was real nice he's also a Columbo vet as well. He's in a great episode of Columbo with William Shatner as the killer, and he is the the central figure for William Shatner's killer's alibi. I don't know if you remember it, That's but right. Burt Remsen right. plays, uh, you know, because William Shatner's character is a, a TV detective, and his alibi is he's going to watch the Dodgers game with 
Bert Remsen and he drugs him on his couch. <laughs> yeah, and that's he tapes of course. he yeah. tapes the baseball game. Yeah, yeah. And so then he goes back, you know, later after he kills somebody and like picks up the game from where his buddy passed out and is just like, "Hey man, you f- you fell asleep during the game or whatever." And Bert Remsen's like, "Holy shit, you know." And he even like sets his watch back and everything. That's like, right. Yeah. And that's oh. like a classic type of Bert Remsen performance. He's like filling a, a spot, you know, like a hole that like they need someone to stand in for but he just does it in such a memorable way you know the other thing that these films have in common this may be superficial but i felt like when both films i could smell the carpets in these gambling dens of course the entire casino in vegas has a really garish red carpet but in particular sean's gambling den in fat choice spirit also has a similar vibrantly red total like backroom gambling type yeah. carpet it's also you know? a restaurant yeah that's what i was gonna say they're <laughs> yeah, they're, they're in a restaurant <laughs> oh, yeah. that's what i was smelling i was like mm, you know it was making me hungry to be honest with you yeah there are lots of sights and smells in fat choice spirit without a doubt lots of atmospheric noise in the film they, well yeah they both have a really like vibrant visual style that mm-hmm. that to me i mean like it even kicks off from the title sequences uh the title sequence in fat toy is like that like insane hot pink <laughs> with like yellow yeah. uh characters on it i mean it is like like you said it's just like in your face it's so bright and then i was like blown away by the title sequence in uh looking to get out with like the crazy like neon of the of all the different titles and the music and it really uh uh uh, showed me where the fucking safty brothers have gotten their like ideas on how like vibrant their title sequences are it like really reminded me of like uh a good time uh particularly like the title sequence in the hal ashby film and it's probably no surprise that they're huge fucking hal ashby fans well i know they're huge fans of the gambler with james khan i know they cited that as their like main inspiration and that's just a cousin to this film you know it's the same kind of vibe like yeah, oh, yeah. just you're you're hanging out with losers in a casino vibe which mm-hmm. such a specific thing they did so well in the 70s obviously you know that is kind of the golden age of i think american gambling movies yeah well i think too with gambling movies they like the uh, for me anyway they, they really tend to lend themselves to character studies because the question often is like what makes compulsive gamblers like who are those people you know like ryan when you're saying like you know you don't have it in you you know it's like you don't have that thing that that propels you to to those places and to risk things like that you know and marsh has sort of described himself as perhaps on the opposite end of the spectrum there that that you know it's like you just see a casino and you feel an urge to go in there and risk it all yeah uh, i think i am somewhere in between uh, because I love gambling. I really do. I think it's fun, but I do have the, the weird other voice in my head that'll say like enough's enough, you know, especially if I go down, I'm usually the, the cut my losses guy. Uh, I won't Mm. chase, chase my losses, but, but I also like love to gamble. So I think Probably I would place myself as more of like the Jerry Feldman character because I think he is also, and you described him as sort of stoic and in that regard he kind of balances out Alex because he is uh, a gambler himself 
but he doesn't, I think, have the the sort of like bottomless floor, right? That uh, that Alex's character does. Alex Alex's character will go to the absolute depths and beyond to chase his losses, to to try to swing his fortune in the opposite direction. And and Jerry is kind of the guy that's that's on his shoulder going. Are you sure about this, right? I mean, I don't know, man. You know, so they, they that he's kind of a, a good way of of keeping Alex in check on a certain level to the best of his abilities uh, throughout this film. But he's definitely along for the ride. And I think in Fat Choice Spirit, there is also that element of a character study, but it's a different type of film made in a different culture, focusing on a different type of game so i think it's a little different and fat choice spirit at times feels almost like an ensemble piece because there's just so many vibrant people and that's not to say that there aren't great side characters in looking to get out but it's about alex though it's really about alex and and jerry you know but fat choice spirit is is as you mentioned, like as I was watching it, I, I I sort of for the first half hour was really trying to figure out like okay, well, what's the movie going to be about? Like, what's the what's the 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 central conflict, if anything? You know, I hate thinking about it in those terms, but it was like, you know, you mentioned in your intro when his when his mother pops up and and there's this whole arc with her and this whole subplot of her Alzheimer's. I'm like, oh, is this movie going to be about the healing power of Mahjong? Yeah. You know, as he works with his mother to help her cope with her Alzheimer's. And it's like, well, that's an element, but that's not the element of the film. You know, is it about him and his girlfriend getting back together? Well, yes, but no, you know, is it about his relationship with uh, the, the the Mahjong master? Yes and no. I mean, there's just a <laughs> lot. Is it about Louis Koo creating a Mahjong computer game? Also, yes. <laughs> yes, yes and no, right? I mean, like, there's, there's just a lot that's packed into Fat mm-hmm. Choice Spirit. There's, there's so much going on there. And I think some of that can be accounted for, you know, if some of our listeners may or may not know this, but there is a, a subgenre of films uh, in Hong Kong, you know, that are Lunar New Year films, right? And they specifically are films that come out at the New Year that are about luck and fortune and and those kind of New Year's feelings. Oh. And so uh, Fat Choice Spirit is like Lunar New Year exploitation, you know? Like <laughs> t- tons of these movies come out every New Year. So um, it, it wow. sort of fits in that like broader kind of thing of like, yeah, it's the New Year. Like, so what is the film about, right? It's not necessarily about one person or the other, but like the overall theme and vibe of you know, luck and fortune. And and that's sort of what I was getting at too, with the whole thing about his luck, right? Because that, as you mentioned, now this makes a lot of sense to me because that's really for him where he sees his luck coming from, right? Wasn't there a thing with his girlfriend? Yeah, the ceremony. And she like stabs the big sign into the sand and gives him the, yeah. like This the, like card that says, it's like a number or something, Yeah, it's right? like the Lunar New Year offering. And she like muscled her way through <laughs> the crowd to the shrine. And hers is like exceptionally larger than everyone else's. But then because of that, that is why his luck almost feels eternal. You know, she is just 
ravenously desiring to marry Andy in this film, Gigi. She'll like go, she'll do anything she can in order to, to get his attentions. But yeah, that's specifically what she like, how she bestows all of that luck upon him in the film. Yes, and and I think we should point out when you say she'll do almost anything to get him back. Uh, it it it's. Uh, that's not an understatement because no. if I'm not mistaken, uh, we're first introduced to her as a as a cop, a motorcycle cop, who's just following him around and writing him tickets. And uh, it's more or less revealed that she became a cop just so that she can follow him around and hassle him and write him tickets so he'll get back with her, right? Yeah, she was a stewardess and then she became a cop and then we also see her as a tax collector uh, and and other things, uh, you know, by the end of the movie. And I do, yeah, I mean, shout out Gigi Lung because, like, she was my favorite character in this in this movie. And she gave me so many laughs. Like, you know, that she's the type of person who would flip over a card table. And, like, I haven't flipped any card tables over in my life, but I almost have, you know? <laughs> so uh, I feel that. And she made me laugh, like, so much in this movie. And a lot of it comes from, yeah, the manic style where, like, in, in one scene she's a cop and in the next scene she's a tax collector and she's wearing a wig and, like, she's got a different outfit on and it's always very, like very funny and she's just freaking out the whole time and and being awesome yes you know? yes and very desperate to get andy back uh who has other things on his mind it's it's very clear i i i did really appreciate that then she she's sort of like okay well i guess i have to get into mahjong to to win his approval this way and goes to a car uh, goes, goes, goes to, excuse me goes to a mahjong game with him like in her motorcycle cop uniform uh and is just playing mahjong with her helmet on still and uh, <laughs> and i think they just like didn't they just like ditch the bike on yeah, the road she just leaves <laughs> Yeah, yeah, she basically just like quits. Quits, and, yeah. Yeah, she was clearly not committed to being a cop because even when she's riding all these tickets, she notices that his car is like really dirty. And then she feels like the compulsion then as opposed to keep writing more tickets like clockwork for every 15 minutes or so he's parked illegally. She starts just intensely cleaning his car. Um, and when he comes back out, it looks like an entirely brand new automobile, you know, and then what he originally went in with. It just can't be stressed enough how insane and manic the tone of this film is, both in terms of the like rapid fire comedy that's on display and then also the camera work. I mean, this film has so many crane shots. It's just as much of an action production as a regular Johnny Toe film, as with many of his comedies are. They feel like action films, uh, mm -hmm. even though this one's just like a broad comedy displaying the like huge cast of unbelievably attractive Hong Kong lead performers, you yeah. know? And I would say too, like a, a lot of his other films, a, a Western as well. There's very much like a Western... Uh, you know, uh, tone to a lot of the, the like showdowns between yeah. characters. Yeah, there's like a whistling Leone theme that reoccurs during like moments of Mahjong showdowns or duels that they're even like referred to at a certain point. So yeah, he's definitely, you know, vibing on that. 
And it it's yeah, it is interesting. Obviously, then in contrast, looking to get out is uh, yeah, a, a much more shambling, you know, lumbering kind of movie. Yeah. It's, but but still has a manic pace of its own. Yes, I feel yes, right? thanks to the character, right? You know, and I again, I think like there is just this, you know also vibrancy to it you know that haskell brings to the table and you know i found him on record saying uh the vibe was off on the set of this movie uh and just that it was he was it was a mess you know i mean it they did they had a lot of problems that were outside of their control one of them was that there was a sag strike in the middle of the film so they had to shut down production for that uh ashby got drunk and got into a car accident and they ballooned the shooting schedule and they built really expensive sets to double as the casinos, even though they also oh, wow. went to New York and Vegas. So it really was from like an internal perspective, you know, this kind of wreck. But again, I think, you know, at the end of the day, like it's got that that good wreck feeling of a movie about a guy who's teetering on the edge and, and on the brink, you know? We, we talked about imperfect objects recently, and that was something <laughs> I felt about this film. And I, I that doesn't surprise me at all. The vibe does feel off. And I like that about it. I, yes. I feel at first I had trouble accessing what the film was doing. It's so loose and things float around, they're moving in between rooms and spaces, you know, and then they eventually, like, they just, like, hop on a plane to Vegas. It all seems to happen so fast. Even though Haskell Wexler's compositions are relatively tight and in control, the way the film is cut, the way it's paced, the way everyone's behaving, it feels like something that couldn't have been controlled. You know, it's like a radical contrast to how intricately planned out all of these sequences are in Fat Choice Spirit, where there's camera cranes involved, and it's this is something that was storyboarded and designed to death in a way that feels very fun and cartoony. But here, yeah, the vibe is off. It's shadowy. It's dark. I, I often felt on edge. I never knew when I was supposed to laugh. It like wasn't clear when it was signaling me for that. Because at times... I found their antics very funny. At other times, I thought it was really scary. I mean, the film opens with John Voight just, like, spewing a bunch of anti-Chinese sentiment and, like, mocking the Japanese man who's managing the garage. So that's our introduction to this guy. Looking like, like an ice cream salesman, too, mm-hmm. in, like, an yeah. all-white suit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Hey, uh, you give me too much now. That's a tip. Take it while I got it. You wouldn't be getting this in China, believe me. China? Don't take this personal. But nobody's got nothing over there. You know why? No. Because everybody's got to be equal over there. That's why. And if they take over here, forget it. The same thing's going to happen. You think they're going to take special care of you just because you're Chinese? Getting his uh, his rolls out of uh, storage, right? It wasn't a Rolls yeah. Royce that's been in a garage for like eight months or something like that. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's a very like a very in your face introduction to a character. Uh, you know, I, I think with so many films like this that that it, it, a lot of it's going to hinge on on whether or not you can just sort of like hang on for the ride with a guy like that to start on. Yeah. On such a note, you know, can you are you going to be entertained by a guy that's going to be this uh, this brash and this, uh, you know, this much of an asshole, right? Like some people really do get turned off by that, especially when a film is like 
anchored around someone like that. Now, me personally, I love that shit. I'm looking for <laughs> characters like that. You know, I want somebody that's so, so raw. And this is why off mic, we were talking about this earlier. I was basically like right away, I made the comment to you, like John Voight, your Cassavetes is showing because knowing that a lot of this was conceived and written and improvised you know, in a very similar way, like Cassavetes uh, has a lot of characters who are just kind of ugly and, and Cassavetes looks for the beauty in ugliness. And I got that sense right away. Like that must have rubbed off on, on Voight. You know, Voight's character for me in this is, I think, one of the greatest depictions of a gambler I've ever seen in the sense to be an eternal gambler like he is in this film, you have to be so present-oriented. Yes. Right? You can't live in the past. You can't think about the past. You can't be haunted by your mistakes. That's where you'll second-guess things. You can't plan for success. You can't plan for winning. You can't make plans for tomorrow. You have to just absolutely exist on that razor's edge of the moment. He is just the most impulsive dude. It's just whatever pops into his head, he's going to run headfirst that direction. I felt that for all the characters, like just simply being with him is gambling because you don't know what you're going to get, right? Like one minute we're going to be up and we're going to be having a great time with him. And the next minute, oh fuck, now we're all implicated in a, in like a crime of some kind. Yeah. There's a moment in the beginning when they're like walking down the street and, uh, you know, Voight says, uh, don't I always get us out? And Jerry goes, yeah, two weeks last July, you know? <laughs> so again, there's even that element, you know, built into the movie of right. Like Jerry is much more even keeled. He's thinking about like, you know, you can lose money, you know, <laughs> like you can whatever. But yeah, for Voight, he's just eternally in the present uh, in every aspect of his life. There's that great bit where uh, Alex, you know, he shows up at the apartment with Jerry. He's trying to tell him the story, right? About what His happened. wonderful day. His wonderful day. And just Jerry is constantly like, get to the point, what happened, like, let's go. And Void is getting, like, pissed at him because Void wants to live in the details of everything that happened. Like, you know, would you let me tell the fucking story my way? He's eking out certain moments, and, like, Jerry knows him, so Jerry knows this is ultimately getting to... He lost $19,000 in a poker game to loan sharks who are going to drop acid on their face. Right. You know, Jerry's like, okay, what, what's ahead of us? Like, I want to know what we're facing now. And Boyd's like, no, 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 no. I want to focus on like the great moments that led up to this, you know, like the, the being in that moment of sitting there and feeling fucking great and being up. He has to exist there. I think him being a character of the present is a good way of diagnosing him too because that's how the film feels and that's one of the big differences i actually think structurally between looking to get out and fat choice spirit looking to get out almost feels like it's unfolding in real time yeah and then on the opposite end of the spectrum fat choice spirit time is so elusive and strange at moments that when a story from the past is being recounted and it's being reenacted in front of our eyes 
the rug can be pulled from under us and we realize that story is happening again right now. So, for example, there's this insane moment of the film that I, you know, even to this day, I still find confusing, even having just watched this thing last night. Mm -hmm. It's insane. When Andy is reunited with his family and he finds out that his mother is suffering from Alzheimer's and then he reconnects with his brother, Louis, who has become like a rather successful man in academia and then is also now eventually developing a video game uh, later on in the film. But when he's talking to him and hearing about his life, he like shares... Oh, see, now I'm confused. Andy's debts got their home repossessed, but... What's happening then in the present is Louis' like dot com bubble burst or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he lost all his money because he's like this MIT tech guy, like Silicon Valley, Hong Kong guy or yeah. whatever. And so it's both of the sons have caused these repossessions yeah. in the past and then in the present again and then later for a third time. Yes, because the gag that develops out of this insane time shift jumble that Ryan's talking about <laughs> this time is because Louie it has who's shown back up is is basically like trying to care for the mom and saying that Andy's a bad influence. He's the deadbeat son. He's the degenerate gambler of the family, right? So he's more or less like I have to take care of mom. We can't trust Andy, because he's just this 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 no good deadbeat with nothing to provide for, and then as Louis, as a result of the the dot com burst, is getting all of his stuff possessed, repossessed, or whatever. That's when Andy's like, well, "You can come stay at my place, right?" That's the yes. ultimate gag, you know. Yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll, I mean, I, I still feel like in order to make this make a little bit more sense, what what's so funny about this scene? So basically. Louis is saying, Andy, when you fucked all this shit up in the past, these dudes showed up, they went through our home, they itemized everything, they counted all the eggs, and then everything was repossessed, and we lost it all. So while he's describing that, we see those people going through the house, counting the eggs, doing everything he's describing that happened in the past. But then those men from the government that are repossessing everything enter the frame with them in the present and then present new documents saying your stuff's all being repossessed right now in the quote-unquote present of the film's reality. So a flashback becomes the present within a single scene within the frame. It's insane. And then the real joke is actually, you know, the following scene (laughs) when the mom uh, is telling everyone at Andy's house that uh, 
she she's you know she has alzheimer's so she's mixing them up and saying andy's my degenerate son and then she turns around and is like louis my degenerate son yeah. because now these things have like these things have repeated and she doesn't remember and now like again cuz they're like mirroring each other right the yeah. you know the silicon valley stonks are also gambling you uh-huh. know uh, but we should say too i mean this film is also like built on uh, a significant amount of uh, alzheimer's confusion jokes yeah very broad very (laughs) broad alzheimer's jokes i I will say it is really broad but i felt this way the first time i saw it and i still felt it this time to me it's actually a really great example of what i love about hong kong cinema and it is an example of when it can go bad at like in other situations in less skilled hands but i personally find those moments of the the mother with Alzheimer's to be equally funny and extremely sad at the exact same time. And I think it's handled really well. There's an amazing moment where she calls Andy and is trying to place an order for food. And Andy has been completely disconnected from his mother at this point, and he recognizes her, and she starts trying to, as she's ordering food, to figure out what her address is. And Andy's also trying to figure out the address so he can come and find her. It turns out that he's, like, right outside. That's, like, a weird thing. And because she kind of wanders out looking for her address, wandering the streets, and she bumps into him. And she approaches her son, Andy, does not recognize him, and says, hey, can you please tell the man on the other line of this phone where my address is so he can deliver the food and yet it's he takes the phone so now he's got two phones up against his ears and he's talking to himself but he's also talking to his mother and he looks her in the eyes and says i'm sorry mom for everything and it's silly and it's making light of alzheimer's but it's empathetic and it actually really registers for me emotionally i was really moved in that moment and Generally, when the Alzheimer stuff is deployed, I think it's equally tender and silly. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think she's very funny throughout the movie, you know, and it is a sympathetic uh, treatment of it at the end of the day. I mean, it's about these guys, like, caring for their sick mother uh, and just dealing with all the confusion in a in a lighthearted, fun way, you know? And it, it speaks, again, to the extreme, I think, broad comedy of, of Fat Choy Spirit, right? Uh, and, and on the other hand, again, to, to contrast the films, uh, something I read in the in the Being Hal Ashby book uh, that I poached all my knowledge from, uh, Voight at the time they made uh, Looking to Get Out said about Ashby, quote, he's an extremely gifted humorist, witty and bright, part W.C. Fields and part some kind of mystic. And so I was thinking, you know, I guess one of the, the crucial differences is Fat Choi is is certainly slapstick, you know, and and broad, and yeah, if you want to look at looking to get out in the fields tradition, right? Because so much of it is verbal, and and it has its slapstick physical elements. I mean, it's also got one of my favorite things in movies, which is a a chase scene with a bunch of out of shape guys. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there is just like nothing better than that to me. Just like these fat guys 
smokers from the 70s just like running through hotel kitchens after each other super slow yeah real time you know yeah Yeah. so thinking about yeah you know wc fields versus yeah something maybe a little more physical and zany and not as yeah verbal and weird and intellectual you know as fields yeah and something you know um that I, I kind of appreciate that I, I, I always consider, you know, these sort of like Hal Ashby, just sort of like weird touches, these weird flourishes that you'll see with a lot of characters and side characters. One of those characters that to me is is so much more like a Hal Ashby character than I would imagine a John Voight character is the uh, the elevator guy. Uh yeah, <laughs> you know oh who I'm talking God. about the elevator. Yeah, what's his name? Harv, Harvey, Harvey, yeah. Harvey, the elevator guy, right? Whose whose only job seems to be to just like uh, be troubled by anybody who gets in his elevator. You know, he just is this like zonked out, like druggy burnout type character that's constantly listening to like disco on his headphones, and everyone is just fucking up his day constantly. Oh my god, yeah. Like every every shot with that guy, he's smoking in an elevator, basically. Yeah. Which is there's like yeah. the, there's the bit where someone is is even like you know criticizing his smoking, and he takes his just lit cigarette and uses it to light a fresh cigarette. He's got two <laughs> cigarettes then that he's smoking in front of this person who's telling him she doesn't like the fact that he's smoking. I wish he stuck around for longer. You know, it's yeah. a far cry from, uh, you know, the uh, smoke-filled elevator of New York City to the Dr. Zhivago suite oh, at yeah. the MGM Grand, you know? There's a big difference there. I will say I found that scene kind of dumb only because I feel like I've grown tired of scenes of people reacting really happily to a new hotel room. Um, maybe just because it's been done to death since then, like people showing up in Vegas and then wandering through in an expensive suite being like, oh my God. And that was one moment I thought the film kind of like went on a little too long, like listening to John Voight just get excited over all of this shit. I was like, I don't care. Come on, let's keep, let's keep this thing going. Well, you got to live in the present like Alex. You well, know? Yeah, but that, that's sure. the thing is I was watching it, you know, and especially like by that point in the film when Jerry and Alex's relationship is pretty well established and they're going on this trip. Like I, I just felt like more or less from this point on, they're just like little kids basically, you know, and that's a big thing for Alex is his like arrested development. He's a very immature guy. And, and Jerry is just this, you know, this big sad sack. I mean, he's just Burt Young for fuck's sake, right? So he's just along for the ride. And that's part of it with Alex is you, you can't help, but get caught up in his childlike wonder for everything, for literally everything, for everything. Again, that just pure impulsive energy of being like, wow, this is fucking great. Isn't this great? Just focus on the fact that this is great. And they get in the Dr. Zhivago suite and they have a pillow fight. These grown ass men running from debtors on their way to hustle money in Vegas through an elaborate scheme posing as a a personal friend and associate of the owner of the casino, right? And they just have a fucking pillow fight in the Dr. Zhivago suite. Voight's 
boundless energy throughout this film. My God, he is just running in and out of every fucking scene. I mean, holy cow, it's exhausting being with this guy. Yeah, that's why I'm so sympathetic to Jerry. You know, Jerry's behavior and reactions to everything in these fi- in this film really, really rang true for me. I mean, he does surrender himself and have a good time. But as we mentioned, every moment that Jerry is spending with John Voight, it is a it's a gamble. And he's the one that's constantly doubting. And I guess maybe that's just more relatable to me. Like if I had conned my way into the Dr. Zhivago suite in Las Vegas. Yeah, you wouldn't be able to enjoy it. No, I would be, I'd be stressed out. I'd be like, no, we cannot ask them to bring up the Don Perignon, you know, complimentary. Like this is all going to come back and bite us in the ass. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) Alex is so good at compartmentalizing. I mean, it's just like, yeah, there's gangsters after us. But like until they're in front of me, like it's not my problem. Mm -hmm. You know, but to your point, Andy, this idea of this like arrested development and like sort of naivete that I think both of them have, even with Jerry, there's a whole thread of the film about how he cannot distinguish a normal woman from a prostitute uh, (laughs) because he's so naive. And it's a running joke throughout the movie that obviously pays off with him having sex with Rusty, the prostitute who recurs throughout the movie. But uh, again, I think that's part of it. And he is this divorced guy uh, as, you know, uh, Alex, as we learn, has his past relationship troubles, some of which are quite serious, you know? Uh, So, yeah, they are just, again, yeah, this, like, dumb and dumber uh, out there in Vegas living for for the moment and as much as Jerry can allow it, you know? But he gets into it. Yeah, there's so many lines in the movie, like... I think in like every scene, there's there's a, a variation on the line, let's not worry about that now, right? I mean, that is like Alex's refrain throughout mm-hmm. this film is, is let's not worry about that that's now. That's the gambler mindset. Absolutely, right? <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, maybe that's why I just can never be a gambler. That's a skill I admire and just desperately wished I had. But I, yeah, I'm, you know me, I can't compartmentalize like that. I mean, I think my, you know, <laughs> my favorite line in the movie is, is when Jerry uh, is defending Alex to Patty and he says, uh, you know, if you're in a jam, he's probably the best guy to have around even though he probably put you in that jam to begin with, right. you know? And, yeah. and again, that's sort of a prophetic line that again, sort of pays off in the structure of this movie, because at a certain point, Alex proves himself quite useful uh, in, in several ways, you know? So he isn't just this loser, you know? And I think obviously that's what Ashby sees in the material, right? This character to, to, to run around with. I mean, Speaking of the the like shambling style of this movie, one detour that I I love is in the middle of that chase uh, when they're being like, yeah, the you know the loan sharks from New York come out to Vegas and they're after them, and it gets you know the pace picks up even further. And there's a moment where they enter Jerry and, and Alex enter this ballroom, and there's like RVs in there, but it's just this just huge cavernous space all of a sudden. And Jerry and Alex are are talking about their ex-wives or his ex-wife, Jerry's ex-wife. And as they do, they're looking to get out of the ballroom. And they try every single door around the side of this ballroom. What do you got against Lillian? You want to talk about? 
about that now? Huh? Why not? She's a pain in the ass. Yeah, what else? What else? She's selfish. She's selfish, Jerry. She's selfish. That's it? She's a liar. She's she's sniveling, ugly woman. Like a piranha fish. She's a fish, Jerry. That's eating away at us. Nothing is open. That's all? No, it's your fault. It's you. You're encouraged. So what's the difference? As long as you're happy. Taking care of her kids. People shouldn't have kids if they're not responsible. And not your kids. Kids are kids. No! And they're running from gangsters while this is happening. And it's just like one of those moments where you go, yeah, like this, you know, a, a normal film does not allow just such detours, you know, where all of a sudden... You're just lost in the in the casino, like especially one that takes place entirely in a just a wide shot. Yeah, it's a huge wide shot that pans. That would normally have been something close ups on every door as they're trying to push them, but they become so tiny. It was like a shot in platform almost, which we just talked about. It's <laughs> yeah, just totally. they become tiny figures talking about their problems in the distance, and we see this giant room. Yeah, it's 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 great. I mean. And again, I think that's what kind of contributes at times to the feeling of, you know, this movie almost um, being experienced in like real time, because there are so many moments like that where it just breathes. And in some moments, it's because there's improvisation going on between the actors and everybody's riffing. So harder to, to chop some of that stuff up. But then, yes, in chase scenes that are, are very long and very slow because of the, the people who are running, and they're constantly making jokes throughout the film, too, about how much they all smoke. But yeah, in the Johnny Toe movie, I mean, that thing is sliced up and it is, it is, as you mentioned, it has been finely tuned like a watch, right? It is, everything clicks right when it's supposed to. You know, I think one thing... Um, Again, another like connection here that I, I think we sort of got to just a little while ago uh, between these two films is these aren't really films about winning. These are films about losing. And a, a great connection between the two films, I think, in their exploration of gambling is at the core, uh, they both are exploring how, like, if you want to be a gambler, you have to be a good loser. Like that's the only way you can actually exist as a gambler, to be a good loser. Uh, in the case of, in looking to get out, uh, I think he's, uh, when when we first get introduced to Smitty, uh, Alex is trying to tell Jerry like who Smitty is. You know, he's even Smitty himself like describes himself as like, you know, one of the biggest losers that's ever, ever been there. Cause right. His fortunes are down. He's like a waiter at the fucking casino when we're introduced to him. And Smitty's like, yeah, you know, I, I've lost big. Oh yeah. I've lost everything, but I'm still one of the best there is meaning, right. That like for him to be great is to be like the best loser. And then there's that whole sequence in Fat Choi when his fortune turns and he's talking to Gigi and, and he's constantly criticizing her at first 
because he sees her as a bad loser. I love when she does throw that table because we see her toss it and then she tries to explain it away as like, oh, I was, you know, I was leaning on it too hard and it sort of fell over and then we cut and we see that the the table has been tossed like across the lawn, it's upside down and there's just a bunch of mahjong tiles all over the place. But, you know, she, yeah, she's a very sore loser and gets really worked up. And it's funny, too, how that plays in with the Alzheimer's subplot of the film because she keeps getting these second chances at making a good impression on his mother. You know, she gets like a little bit better of a loser as the film goes on. But yeah, it, it is addressed very explicitly. His fate has been taken away, and then he's still feels peace he doesn't feel the curse that has been placed on him when she because she's the one that hexes him eventually in the film oh, she yeah. she's like you are your luck is gone i retract all of the, all of the things i've done for you and it does work which i think is something that's interesting in this film the like magical realist quality i guess her love was the one that had given him all of that luck and her disappointment and frustration is the one that took all of that luck away and that happens literally on screen and that leads to, you know, one of my favorite sequences of the film is when she starts dating Sean, the Mahjong master, uh, after she's given up on Andy uh, and they're playing on a, a boat, you know, in the water uh, with all these like gangsters who are dressed like, yeah, 2002 weird like hip hop appropriation. Yeah, they're like a boy band. Yeah. <laughs> And she, you know, she's playing with all these like gangsters or whatever, you know, they're comical. Uh, And then she starts getting pissed off at all of them individually and starts throwing them off the boat. Uh, And it goes down the line where she's like, you know, she's shoving these guys off the boat as her new boyfriend is just like, yeah, you know, this is how it's got to be. She's pissed, you know, Uh, until until ultimately, yeah, they turn to like, uh, you know, the Mahjong master's dad, who is also one of the great mahjong players in the area uh and he's like all right i'll go well he well he throws a bit of a fit and it's really funny because he's huge he's like he fills in for lamb suet who is not in this film sadly that's like one little mark against it the classic (laughs) fat guy that's in every johnny toe movie he's replaced by another exceptional a uh, large actor, one who d- is peppered throughout Toe's filmography. But, you know, he he's really grumpy about it, and he, like, you know, he grabs his nose and plugs it to make the dive. But it's funny, we don't actually see him jump in the water, and you can tell that in reality, not even Johnny Toe could convince that guy to jump off of that yacht in- into the into the water. He was, he was not having it, and he's too big. I mean, like Bert Remsen, uh, he's got a cane. Uh, he doesn't move around so well so yeah probably uh probably a good good reason why yeah you know it just occurred to me andy too the whole thing about smitty and is 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 it a you know a game of skill or whatever there is something he says too that just you know sparked in my mind but he says uh I was an engineer once, yeah. I built dams. Uh I was a legitimate citizen, you know? And again, thinking of, like, you know, 
the the skillful mind of an engineer. Yeah. Like who could who else could win at blackjack against the house? Than yeah. This guy, because that's know? that's what he says. He said, "I took my my mathematical mind and I applied it to gambling, and then gambling, like the thrill he got from that." was nothing like building a fucking bridge or whatever. I mean, it was, it was then that's it. This is what I'm going to do with my, with my ability to crunch numbers. I'm going to come up with a system, the perfect system. I wrote down in here, like the Smitty system. Oh and, my God. I was just cracking up because that's it then, you know, like that's, that's how he explains to like Jerry, like, don't worry, this guy's got it. You know, he used to be an engineer, whatever. He's really good with math. And like, it's, I, I think the, the joke is that it's deliberately like confusing because Jerry's head is spinning. That's us. You know, our head is also spinning over, over Smitty system. And it just sounds so insane, but like, but that's it. Now, each stack represents a bet in A is a hundred. B is 200, C is 500, and and, four, and D, 4, is 1,000. Now, you see, so when I, ask, when I ask for A, you bet the first stack, 100. Look, when the odds are in our favor, you bet the third stack, 500. You got that? How do we know when the odds are in our favor? What kind of question is that? Look, it's a plus-minus situation. Plus-minus situation, right. Jerry. A is 1, which could be 10. B is 2, which could be 20. And D is 4, which could be a $100,000 bet. We're going to kill him. You know it. You know, thinking about those types of systems that are at play in gambling films, I feel like one of the reasons I love gambling films so much is that very frequently the actual gambling scenes are like the Kuleshov effect on full display and they're able to explore it in so many different ways because even right when I was a kid watching James Bond films and watching fucking Bond alert the- <laughs> yeah. and watching all of the gambling scenes and that I didn't know what the fuck was going on well yeah especially when they're playing Baccarat you know and you're just like what the fuck is Baccarat you know <laughs> yeah. I-, I don't know but but even then, right, like as limited as the actual editing in some of those like earlier stuffy casino scenes and like the Sean Connery Bond films, I was still invested to a certain extent when I was young. I, I could feel a bit of the tension. I could understand when things were shifting. And even here with Fat Choice Spirit, as I said, it's self-proclaimed, like I don't fully understand the rules of Mahjong, but throughout, because of the way he shoots it and the way he cuts it and the way he highlights certain things in people's hands and then looking at their faces, we're constantly understanding the hands and being able to read what's happening in the sequences because of the way it's edited. And I I thought about that exact same thing, Ryan, when I was watching it. And I mean, look, you don't, you don't have to, uh, you don't have to do this, but if you just brushed up a little bit on Hayden White, he could explain it all perfectly. I mean, that's what he says in the tropics of discourse. Like we may not be able to understand the specifics of another culture, uh, a culture, especially that's very foreign to us, but we have little trouble understanding stories from those cultures, right? And and we can get wrapped in because of because of stakes, because of characters, protagonists, conflicts, and and again, the specifics of what's happening don't really matter as far as the rules of mahjong. We just see 
a guy that we like is suddenly losing. Uh Oh, you know, like this isn't good. Like, and the way that everyone's reacting, like it, it keys us in on the, the, the intricacies of a game. We don't even understand, you know, we're just, we're, we're along for the ride, but, but we get it because of the emotions involved. We get it because of story structure that is as similar, uh, you know, in Hong Kong as it is in the United States of America or wherever you are, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I think both films really do capture that certain kind of intoxicating feeling of gambling, the thrills of gambling, right? And and it's doing so by, you know, the ways you guys are talking about. And you know, one thing that gambling movies have, like any movies that are like this specific about something, is the fetishization of objects and designed objects. And right, the hands, the cards, the chips. It's like fucking ASMR for, for people, myself specifically, you oh, know? Yeah. Like, I want to go... go play with some chips right now just talking about the, all the shit. all the tile shuffling oh, in in man. fat choice spirit yeah it made me honestly just want to buy a set of those tiles just to like play with them a little bit you know yeah. just to look at them and touch them because you know every like every group had a different like colored set and they were very like the color scheme you described like very bright and mm-hmm. and you know like oh that looks fucking cool you know and it, it, it honestly I will say it flat out like fat choice spirit made me now want to learn how to play. Yeah, Roger. We're going to do it. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, we, we really should. It, the, the, the group of like old women sitting around and playing Mahjong for clearly like endless hours seems to just be so relaxing, so pleasant and exactly where I want to be. Oh my God. The, 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 ritual. Healing, the healing power is on display in this film. <laughs> yes. True. dude. The, the ritual <laughs> quality of, you know, how in Mahjong they shuffle tiles, like everybody puts their hands in the middle and is just shuffling up those tiles. Like, oh, man. Yeah, I was like drooling every time that was happening. Mm-hmm. There is that great moment of the po- healing power of Mahjong where when Andy plays such a great hand, much to the uh, frustration of another one of the woman players who has like an extremely stiff neck to the point where her body is somewhat contorted. She like jumps up in frustration and you can hear in the soundtrack the like crack of her spine and she doesn't even react to it and she just gets angry at him for withholding certain pieces or leading her on. But then she's, yeah, of course, she's like, ah, Mahjong, look at that. It's it's healed my my accursed neck. Sure, and again, you know, as you mentioned, with with the mom i mean that's you know really the focus of like trying to anchor anchor her into the present you know it's just mm-hmm. being like you remember the rules you know how to count this up you know how to score this mom you know this you taught us the game and that is like one of the things that that is able to like just kind of like keep her lucid at times throughout the film so so yeah i mean there are comedic points but there is also you also mentioned earlier this sort of touching uh empathetic uh quality of the interactions with the mom and and using mahjong to bring her to the present if you will but but i think another quality for me that i was going to say that also helped for me in connecting to mahjong even though i don't know the game at all is that uh for my own cursory whatever research that I ended up having to do just to try to make sense of it. Like, uh, there are these like specific hands that have names and I don't know if you guys felt this, uh, but when I was watching it, 
But I, I couldn't help when the players are like talking about the specific hands, like, oh my God, is he going to bust out 13 unique wonders right now? Like when they're throwing out all these different names, I, I felt like it was like a Wuxia film. And like they were talking about different styles, you know, like here comes yeah. Crane style, you know, like if Crane style's thrown out, we're done for. Oh no. The way they were describing his hands, it, it felt like a Wuxia movie to me at times. Hell yeah, because yeah. they're much more evocative names than just like a full house or a royal flower or a straight you know yeah the the variety of hands and their descriptors yeah very much make it feel like it's all a part of a graceful action set piece i mean there are so many games of mahjong played in this film and i can't stress that enough and i think that that the way everyone's performances are so keyed in and how excited they get and then also just the way that johnny toe shoots it and cuts it is that even for someone like me again who struggles to understand the rules i was never bored and i was never lost i was never frustrated that we had another mahjong game you know cropping up at any point in the film they're all extremely invigorating yeah they're full of personality you know with all the different players whether they're playing together or helping each other out or going against each other i mean yeah it's just a it's just a colorful film where every interaction is like yeah, this, this special thing or whatever, you know? Yeah, they all have so much meaning to them because they keep reversing it too. For example, there's a sequence where, you know, they're constantly betting whether whether Andy's going to win or whether he's going to lose. That will determine if he will actually end up marrying Gigi finally, um, if that will supersede his frustrations with her being a sore loser. And there's one moment where he's trying to lose the game and he keeps winning he can't stop he keeps trying to get rid of some of these hands and then when he picks things up he realizes he's got another perfect hand and everyone's so distressed around the table and they're like well what's happening here i feel like things are falling apart so johnny toe is able to turn a game of mahjong into both something that's electrifying and in other moments something very tender and heartbreaking Every element of the game is like explored with such great detail. On the flip side, you know, you're talking about how many uh, hands of Mahjong are played throughout the film. Uh, interestingly, or ironically, or whatever you want to say. There's almost no gambling in looking to get out. Yeah, they're really... In a literal <laughs> sense. Yeah, absolutely. It's like bookended. Like we get, we get him in the beginning going to a, a, a card game. And mm-hmm. then, you know, the next moment, we're going to see some actual hardcore gambling by any of the, the main characters uh, is at the very end with Smitty when they finally march him into the, the high roller room for, for his big, you know, uh, blackjack showdown to try and help them finally get out. Even going back to what you were talking about, I, I think in its own way, looking to get out is also about the healing power of gambling because really, I mean, that's the whole essence of the film. Like, they need this gambling and they need Smitty and they need this game to quite literally like save their lives but it also like this whole crazy crackpot scheme by the end of the film is going to have fixed a lot of people's lives or brought closure to some people's lives or opened up new chapters for people's lives like i mean we haven't really gotten into the character of patty but but there's this whole subplot where you know Anne margaret shows up and we learn that she has 
a, a relationship with Alex that goes way back. And of course, there's a lot of references to her daughter. Uh, Tasha. Tasha, played by Angelina Jolie Voigt in this film. Uh, her yeah, first in her film, very right? first, yeah, first screen appearance. You know, there's these references to Tasha, and we see that there's something Patty is trying to communicate to Alex throughout the film, but she can't quite seem to pin him down because every time she's trying to have this, this you know, serious conversation with him, he's suddenly running out out the room and just sticking her with Jerry for a little while. And, and, uh, you know, there's something that needs to happen there. And I don't think you have to be a genius to put together like what's eventually coming here. But by the end of this film, like the relationships of so many of these characters, they're, they're strengthened, they're improved. They've, they've been moved, uh, beyond where they they currently are in in limbo. As you mentioned, you know, like both films have in common uh, a certain element of like letting go or being a graceful loser, right? Because you know, to add on to what you're saying, uh, only one character has a material gain uh, by the end of the movie, and it is most certainly not Alex and Jerry, who uh, leave Vegas empty-handed. However, their issues with loan sharks uh, somewhat resolved because uh, their crazy scheme, you know, climaxes uh, with Smitty hitting it big time. You know, he's betting 140000 across the blackjack table from their original just like what twenty thousand dollars ten thousand dollars that they put up but but again we should also point out that their stake for this game in the first place is stolen from the casino itself yeah where where (laughs) jerry feldman has basically been given like an open account because he's bernie gold's good friend And, and we should stress if you didn't pick up on that earlier uh no, Jerry Feldman, Burt Young does not know Bernie Gold, the owner of this casino. And yes, it's all a con. And he's been given like an open line of credit. So they go and they cash a check and they've got $10,000 cash. I believe that they start their their uh, their stake with when they sit down in the high roller table. And as you said, are, are just suddenly putting up on a, on a given hand, 140K, they go down immediately they go down huge immediately and they keep going down and think at a certain point they're down like a hundred and eighty thousand dollars to the casino and it's like holy fuck but again go back to burt remsen as smitty and and you talk about the kuleshov effect throughout that entire game he his expression doesn't change once from winning to losing when he's down to when he's up yeah, it is just true. steady and smitty also has a double shot of vodka uh, right in front of him that he's not allowed to drink until yeah. it's over, but he's just sort of like smelling the vodka you know because he <laughs> wants it so badly but again he's like don't let me drink, (laughs) you know, right when they sit down. And that's a a very charged moment for, again, like, yeah, the ups and downs, the highs and lows that this guy's had in his life. Uh, And they hit the big time, you know, and they're they're freaking out, which gets the attention of Harry 
and Joey, the lone shark guys who've been chasing him all around and now are quite upset because Burt Young uh, shoved money up uh, Harry's ass when they got into <laughs> a fight in the bathroom. And you think it's a joke when Burt Young tells him that he, he shoved, the, you know, what happened to the money? I shoved it up his ass. Uh, we find out later that he did indeed shove some money up Harry's ass. Yeah, the darkness of Jerry, yeah. <laughs> Dude, yeah, it's like a wild moment too because yeah, when the loan sharks are like just sitting and having a drink like the guy who got Harry, I guess the guy who got the money shoved up his ass. Like he is like, he looks so violated by yeah. it. Like it was like a sexual assault to him. And yes. he's like having trouble explaining it to his friend because he's like so upset with what happened. And again, this other like weird, you know, oddball Hal Ashby touch is just like, we get banter between the loan sharks and we, we like yeah. in a moment also feel empathy for them, you know, like, Oh man, yeah, like, yeah that's horrible. What would, the, what would the fallout be after having a bunch of money shoved up your ass? Like it would actually be bad. It wouldn't be fun. <laughs> Yeah, you know? it's yeah. personal, as he says now. Yeah, so they, you know, basically they set it off, and the film climaxes with uh, a slapstick uh, casino, casino brawl. brawl. And I gotta, I gotta, <laughs> you know, I gotta drop this on the pod because it reminded me of. Uh, uh, a very memorable casino experience I had a number of years ago. Went to the Horseshoe in Hammond, Indiana. And while we were there, a massive brawl broke out. And bottles no were way. bottles were smashed over people's heads. And in particular, <laughs> it was insane, dude. It was like 40 in, you know? There was like a dozen people brawling. <laughs> oh, and we saw this kind of from a distance. Uh, but we did see a guy getting caught carted away in a uh, a wheelchair wearing an Urlacher jersey and just like <laughs> bleeding from his head oh. because he'd gotten a bottle broken over it. Oh my God. And the cherry on top was that like 30 minutes later, we saw the real Urlacher with his entourage at the <laughs> casino. And we were like, damn, we just saw like an Urlacher get <laughs> yeah. wheeled off. The false Urlacher. <laughs> oh, <yeah>. A bloodied <laughs> false Urlacher. Oh my God. Yeah, but it is, it's a crazy brawl at the end oh of looking God. to get out. I mean, it's just farcical because you've got security guards that are mishandling their weapons. <laughs> a gun accidentally goes off at one point. They just, they cannot hold onto these loan sharks. Like these limpy Las Vegas security guards just cannot get a grip on these huge loan sharks from New York that just power their way through everything. Well, it's pandemonium. It's a great great cinematic brawl because in great cinematic brawl traditions you know lines are drawn and then lines fall apart because at a certain point the security guards are trying to protect Alex and Jerry but then in the chaos uh, everyone just starts decking everybody and then Alex and Jerry are also fighting the security guards They're everyone's fighting each other I mean that's a great brawl you can't keep track of who's hitting you you know you use the, 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 the term farcical and I think it's a great way to describe this film to me it is like a throughout the film, I mean, it's a, it's a, it is a great farce. It's a comedy of doors, of slamming doors on a certain level. Like great farces have characters going in and out, slamming doors, and it's got that brisk 
that brisk feeling of characters entering and exiting very quickly and, and in great farce traditions at the end through all those slamming doors like you then have to just bring everybody in a room circumstances now have to bring all these people who were separated together and as you said it it, it all comes to a head even when bernie gold himself shows up to go what the fuck is going on in my casino that's not Jerry Feldman. <laughs> when Molly and I were talking about the different plot points of looking to get out, we always referred to Burning Gold as the fake powers booth. Did you guys also see the <laughs> resemblance there? I, I didn't look him up. I, I forget what his name is, but he is a character actor that's been in a whole bunch of stuff. I think most recognizable to people might be uh, uh, if you've seen Untouchables. He's in the Untouchables. He plays a... Uh one of the the he plays like the corrupt Chicago like chief of police or whatever mm, who who has sure. a, has an old man fist fight with Sean Connery in an alley the Chicago way or whatever. Yeah, oh yeah. yeah but and he points out too that he's not really keen on being paid back uh, the money that he had given them in the first place. Yeah, being paid back with his own money. <laughs> with his own money, yeah. <laughs> and at a certain point in all the pandemonium, uh, Harry the loan shark, uh, you know, is like holding, uh, you know, everyone at gunpoint, basically. Uh, and that's where you know Alex has his uh, his heroic act, you know, in a life of bullshit and. Cow- Cowardice, you know, he charges head on the man with the gun and basically uh, disarms him and kind of ends the pandemonium in that moment. And again, it's like back to Jerry's point. He's insane. He will run at a pistol. And he did. You know, he's the guy you want in the jam, even though he caused the jam in the first place. And that like pays off in that moment. And it also hit me in that moment. That part of the reason why he did that, and it, it it it's a really intense moment because it's like he it's it's something he's also facing very seriously. So many of the other things, like even when they're running from those guys, they're like laughing. Yeah, they're you giggling know? They're, the whole. They're giggling, time. right? It's all a game. Even you know the idea of like fucking over loan sharks, like it's all part of the game to him. But when that guy pulls the gun, like he flips out and he's just like, "You've crossed the line. Like this is all part of the game." You know. We owe you money. You bust us up. You stab me in the hand. You fuck us up. We fight. We have fist fights. It's all part of the game. But a gun, that's taking things too far. Yeah, as they say in Fat Choice Spirit, you got to know the rules of the game. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to violate those rules, you know, like Gigi flipping tables. You can't yeah. be doing that. You know, thinking about especially Alex being the one that put themselves in that situation and then getting them out of it. And just thinking back on the way he got them in that situation was very much a fake it till you make it type situation. And I think that both of these films explore the limits of that type of behavior with Alex, you know, confidently saying of all people, like I'm friends with the person who owns this hotel. Sure. I could then borrow money from him just with no end in sight of how this will all turn out. And in fat choice spirit, I think that that is 
represented with Gigi. As we talked about, she takes on different jobs to try and make up for the fact that she has this rift growing between her and her boyfriend and ex-boyfriend, and she's trying to, to keep up with him. But the way she would take care of him over the years is revealed to have a darker side in a way she was sort of faking it till she makes it. At one point after their th- third situation of repossession where they, they no longer can live in their home, uh, but then at the Saved by the Bell moment, they get the exciting news in Fat Joy Spirit that their public housing application has been approved after many, many years have gone by. So in a moment of pure fate and chance and luck, they end up moving into public housing after all their money is lost from, from Mahjong. And Gigi sneaks in to this public housing apartment at one point to clean it up, and it looks like she's done this great job. But then it's revealed that her form of cleaning was just shoving everything under the couch, tossing garbage out the window, and this leads to a series of flashbacks of her... All of these things that she's done that seemingly on the surface were she confidently went in and was like, oh, I'm bringing lunch for for Andy. I'm giving him what he wants. And the way she was acquiring that was literally robbing children. And she would go up to them and say, you know, hey, make sure you have fish cake tomorrow for lunch. And she would take those children's food and, and give it to Andy. Well, you should point out how they met, which is that he got beat up by a bunch of gangsters and was left in an alley and she was pickpocketing him while he was passed <laughs> out on the ground. She's right. a she's a thief through and through, you know, when they meet. Uh, so, yeah, she is this very, uh, yeah, uh, rough and tumble kind of kind of woman. I was also thinking... Uh, in that sequence you were describing, Ryan, where where she breaks into the apartment and is trying to do a nice thing and clean for him, I, I suddenly also had a flash to Chungking Express, and I was thinking about, you know, what is it with like ex girlfriends in Hong Kong breaking into apartments of of men they're trying to woo and cleaning it, you know, because <laughs> sure. that's what Faye does in, uh, in Chungking yeah. Express. I guess it's a thing, you know. Yeah, and I guess her faking it until she makes it does sort of reach its. It's peak at one point in the film where she gets um, a, a rather gratuitous uh, breast implant oh, yeah. surgery. It makes her fall over. Yeah, it's so disproportionate <laughs> with her like tiny figure that she reveals bruises from when she lost balance because of the added weight on her chest. But, you know, in thinking about all of the different threads in this movie, I feel like that was one that really spoke to me this time around, uh, seeing it again and thinking about her journey of learning not to fake it until you make it, but just to make it with honesty. Well, yeah, I mean, she's, on a certain level, she's more like Alex in this film uh, than anything. You know, she's impulsive. She is prone to outbursts. She is, you know, just chasing whatever moment she's in. She's impulsively, like, bouncing around, trying to... To, to do whatever she can to to get out, to get hers, you know, and whether it's it's wanting to be with Andy one minute or suddenly throwing her lot in with the 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 con men, I think they're referred to, the uh the the other mahjong like hustlers. Uh so yeah, she's yeah. an incredibly impulsive person. So this uh also like a great farce has to bring everybody together. I mean, because this oh, yeah. is a farce as well. I mean it's 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 its own kind of uh, <laughs> rapidly ever-expanding network of individuals. And, and through the twists and the turns, we also have a, a climactic moment of gambling where there's a big Mahjong tournament that will 
declare who once and for all is the the ultimate mahjong warrior is that the title i think he's laying it all on the line it's funny yeah that competition has such a great philosophical weight to it for that entire family but the actual monetary value that's at stake are just like five airplane tickets to japan you know as opposed to the <laughs> half a million dollars that end up being at play at the end of looking to get out the the stakes are a little bit lower in terms of actual financial numbers but the emotional stakes are very high you know? very very high Sam 来? Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't the whole tournament organized as just merely a way to promote the new Mahjong game, the video yep. game that's coming yes, out? It so is. It's, yeah. it's like a, it's even worse. It's just like sort of like a promotional show for for this video game. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, then that's a great sequence, and 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 like for you know Johnny Toe, like this is the 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 climactic shootout but instead it's going to happen at the mahjong tables uh we have all the various people involved and like everybody's playing and everybody's an entrant into this uh and and hilariously like i thought you know yeah the the alzheimer's jokes you know, some of them were very funny to me some of them i couldn't help but go like come on man these are a little low but the one that i really <laughs> the one that i really did really really enjoy uh, in the broad spectrum of their 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 approach to like this debilitative cognitive disease was when the mom is playing against Louis, right? And and she loses to him. And like when you lose, you're like out, you know, and they and, and she like she says, like, I'm doing this for my son, I'm gonna kick your ass or something. And he she loses and and he's like she's like, ah, and she leaves the table and then like Two minutes later, she comes back and sits down and is like, I'm going to kick your ass for my son. And Louis's like, what the fuck? I already, be- I already beat you. And she's just like, what? Like, she is just so like, yeah, you know, I'm going to I'm gonna get your ass. Forgetting, of course, that she already tried and lost very quickly. To- <laughs> and they like haul her off, yeah, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but thinking about Gigi's journey and how she like ends up rectifying her behavior throughout the film... When it comes to that final tournament, we see that she is now returned to her former position of being an airline stewardess. And instead of, you know, punching her way essentially through an offering in order to secure um, her fiancé's luck going forward, instead this time it's much more sincere and something that she did over time. She has collected objects for him uh, on her travels, objects of luck. She provides him with uh, an Iranian hat. (laughs) I love that hat so much. (laughs) Like a big scarf from Nepal, a a necklace from the Vatican, um, and then like a huge skull, like a charm that she had found uh, in Thailand that he could wear around his neck. So when he's decked out in all of this love and compassion from Gigi, the vibes are good and the the game's certainly in his favor. And yeah, it's awesome too because, uh, you know, it is like an action movie because it, it climaxes and of course Andy Lau wins the, the Mahjong Warrior title. But 
uh, Sean and and the, the the gangsters or whatever are still upset about this and is like, let's play again, you know, don't whatever. Yeah, one on one. Yeah, one on one. The duel, you know. Let's prove once and for all, you know. And the Western theme comes back. And in. the Western theme comes back, and we get yes, like you know, after the big shootout, there's the one on one showdown. Now it's just me and you. Yeah, and uh, of course, uh, Andy Lau wins again. Well, but it's 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 interesting because uh, he doesn't actually win because well, that's true. In that moment, Andy sees in him like, all right, man, this is you know, this is going too far, and he he just forfeits. That's right. He walks away from the table. Yeah, he's like, look, man, if you're that hung up on this, if you're that bad of a loser, take it. Have the title, hear the tickets, he throws it all on the table. Call yourself the Mahjong Warrior if you want. Because again, this is going back to his lesson the whole time with Gigi. It was like, you've got to be a good loser. That's where your character really shows. You know, that's what he's been trying to explain to her throughout the whole film. And this is the moment where he ultimately shows his character. Where he's like, look man, if, if, if it's that important to you, you can have it. This is just a game. Mahjong's just a game. But it is, of course, revealed that he would have won. Yeah, he had had like the sickest hand ever and then was just like, you win and walked away. Again, demonstrating, right, that it's, yeah, it's not necessarily about uh, winning, etc. That's another huge connection uh, between the two films because ultimately at the very end, Yes, Smitty did make all that fuck half a fucking million dollars, but also we didn't describe this in the middle of all the chaos in the barroom brawl. Smitty goes down with a heart attack. His bad ticker finally like knocked him out, and and we see him carted away on a on a gurney by a, a couple of EMTs, and they're all crushed about it. You know, a goddamn man lost his life over this i i going forward now want to keep track of like a, a ranking board of the great like s- anguished screams of death that appear in gauntlet films because i previously had mentioned for miami blues when that woman gets just like blasted away by alec baldwin the noise she emits is like so unique and piercing but uh, Bert Remsen here, when he collapses on the floor, screaming of a heart attack, yeah. it is it is a noise unlike any other. Smitty! Oh my God! Oh! Smitty! Smitty! Oh God! Somebody call a doctor! Somebody call a doctor! Um, but of course, there's a method to it, though. There's a reason there for is. it. There's a reason for that ear-piercing scream that cuts through all the chaos and draws all the attention to his heart attack on the floor. Yeah, because, of course, the man who won all that money is dead. Alex and Jerry can't get their payout. And uh, in, yeah, uh, you know, the the ironic uh, world of Hal Ashby, uh, in our outros of the film, as, you know, Alex and Jerry prepare to go back to New York, the uh, loan sharks having been arrested, so that problem at least is just temporarily out of their mind. Worry about it later. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we do see that Smitty is not dead at all and in fact uh didn't have 
A heart attack. Yeah. Much to Bernie Gold's chagrin, he shows up to collect the money that Bernie said rightfully belongs to him and him alone. And uh, and I love that moment too, where he's going to collect the half million, and and you know Bernie Gold clears him on it, but like makes sure that they get the amount correct to the dime. You know, it's not a half million; it's four hundred and thirty-eight thousand and fifty-seven cents, or whatever the fuck right. it is. You know? <laughs> For me, as Alex and Jerry are in the taxi. After all that, they didn't get any money. Like they basically broke even, uh, whatever, you know, you would think like, oh, we, you know, you should be really down about this. And like Alex, who of course has no idea that Smitty is still alive and like has just gone and, and ripped them off and collected the money. He's sitting in the taxi and he's just like, he's just beaming in that taxi because on the one hand it was fun. The trip was fun. We had fun. Didn't we have fun? But he's just like, man, he, what Smitty did is unfucking real. That was the greatest thing I've ever seen. He's just so happy about it. Like, so happy that this guy did it. He beat the house. Smitty's system came through. And Alex, of course, has uh, the, the opportunity to briefly meet his estranged daughter for the first time. And so he's also beaming because of that emotional connection and and i gotta give the film credit it doesn't end with some pat thing about how he's gonna be a a better dad or be a presence in their life he just has a, a very brief touching moment where he meets her and yeah maybe it'll open the door for future possibilities but the film doesn't really indicate anything like that it just shows you the emotional effect that it has on him, right? And then he's just laughing in the cab, you know? Like, they almost got killed. They almost won a half a million dollars, but won jack shit. And that was the best goddamn 24 hours of their lives, oh, you yeah. know? And then the outro of Fat Choice Spirit is really crazy, too. I don't even know how to, like, totally make sense of it. Sort of like the end of 36 Chamber of Shaolin, when Gordon Liu gets to open his own fighting academy or his own chamber. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah it's like a Wuxia film. Yeah, we're know? now on the beach with, uh, you know, like Andy Lau's Mahjong uh, Academy. Yeah. You know, there's all these pupils, all these students, all the characters from the film. And including many, Sean. Yeah, including their enemies. You know, everyone is there on the beach playing and he's sort of like leading them and they're all wearing red uh, and they're just hanging out on the beach. I mean, again, yeah. Learning like, from the master. Learning from the master, the warrior, yeah. you know. <laughs> Well, I guess, Andy, what are some of your favorite gambling masters that uh, you've seen in films over the years? Do you have a particular particular favorite gambling film? Well, I mean, Marsh already mentioned one of them. And I mean, it's, yeah, it's an obvious choice. How can you not? It's one of the greatest gambling films of all time, California Split. So, you know, I'm, I'm also in that camp. That's a, an amazing film and a very similar film on a certain level. Uh, you know, kind of a hangout film like... Like uh, looking to get out, so so that one's great. I just yeah, I love gambling movies in general. I think they are right. They're they're so they're so cinematic. There's just so much emotion and drama in them. So I guess if I had to give more of an oddball pick, but one that I kind of have a soft spot for that I think is a lot of fun. Uh, it's not a great movie. I wouldn't put it up there in terms of you know the quality of these films, but a movie that I I really love because I think it captures a very similar spirit to. The films we've talked about here, probably a little bit more looking to get out, uh, is a movie with Richard Dreyfuss about horse racing called 
Let It Ride. Uh, it's just a uh, 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 early '90s <laughs> dumb dumb comedy. But it's got some really, really, really awesome sequences and awesome moments in it. And, uh, you know, it's just a great, probably one of the best movies about horse racing ever made, I think. Uh, it's it's just a super, super fun time. The kind of movie that you'll put on, you know, the 90 minutes will go by and you'll just, you'll really have enjoyed that time you spent. And it's it's one of the few Richard Dreyfuss movies where I actually think they use him well. That I never like... Richard Dreyfus, if I'm ever supposed to to like think he's a good guy, you know. So this is a movie that very much leans into the fact that that he's a he's a big old piece of shit. And I was somebody, you know, I've spent a lot of time at at horse tracks. I used to go to the old Maywood Park all the time with my buddies, and we'd we'd bet on the the harness racing, which is very different from thoroughbred racing, but it's what was near us, and they served dollar beers and dollar burgers. So better than greyhounds. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We had a lot of fun there. So I think that's a great movie, Let It Ride. Let It Ride, directed by uh, Joe Pitka, the auteur behind Space Jam. Oh, my God, really? Kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, it was Andy's topic yeah. this week. Uh, I believe, Ryan, it's your topic next week. Yep, I- I'm up next. And as Andy began this episode talking about... Um, our milestones and and looking back and reflecting on all we've done, I thought, you know what? Let's look way back, way, 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 way back. Let's go all the way back to a time uh, that's dirty and muddy, but also one full of chivalry and all sorts of other common tropes you see in film. Let's go back to the medieval period. Uh, so that is that is the theme for next week: medieval times. I want to see people walking around with unbearably heavy and clunky suits of armor. I want hands thumping against shields. I want swords clanging together. G- give me all of it. Fantasy or reality, I, I get, take me back. Take me back to the good old medieval times. Sure. <laughs> As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com Thanks, everyone. Some move you made when Harry had his gun out. That's nothing like the move Smitty made. Doubling down on the solid 20. Guy's got a six showing. See Smitty's face when he got the five. How did he know that was a five? How did he know that was a five coming up? How did he know? He knew that was the old plus and minus situation. (laughs) (laughs) My name is Smitty Coffin. You owe me $500,000. Come on, please.